Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. If you'd like, turn the page back to the Collect of the Day, because I'm going to be preaching on the Collect of the Day and the Epistle. So the first half, Collect of the Day, the second half, the Epistle. And I promise you, they interact. But what we learn in this collect, we pray that we may know and understand the things that we ought to do and may also have the grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. What this means is that knowledge alone won't transform you. Did you hear that? What you know and understand, it won't change you. We all know this to be true. I know this to be true about myself because back in the late 90s and early 2000s, I knew that downloading music was against the law. But I use Napster pretty much every day. It wasn't a matter of not knowing what I should do. It was that I didn't have the desire or the will to do it. So of course it's important to know and understand what is right or the good. But here we also pray that we might have the grace and power faithfully to accomplish it. And because it's the last part of the prayer, we notice that that's actually what we're asking for. That's the main thrust of the collect. So if our problem is not primarily a problem of knowledge or understanding, well then what is it? That's what I just said. Our problem is a problem of the will. We have a problem with our affections. Now this isn't just me saying this as if I'm coming to realize this, the first human ever to realize this. Both Nietzsche and Augustine agree on this. And if Nietzsche and Augustine agree on something, well, then it has to be true. They both maintain that we are creatures. First and foremost, we are creatures of desire. Now, this is the absolute perfect place, I think, to point out a distinction in Christian teaching that we at Calvary St. George's love so much. You know that Jim, Jake, and I are all obsessed with the doctrine of justification by faith. The belief that you and I are made right with God, not by virtue of what we bring to the table or by what we do, but by the merit of the one who has gone to the cross in our place and on our behalf. Well, there are different understandings of justification by faith. And instead of them being either or, as if you have to choose between one or the other, I think that they all speak to each other. It's a dialectic. And we learn a little bit more about this great truth of being made right with God by understanding the different emphases. In the fourth century, Augustine, who I just mentioned, he, his understanding of justification by faith was a tad different 
than the 16th century reformers. His understanding of how we're made right with God is different than Luther and Calvin's. And it's beautiful. It's different. And it's true, and it's beautiful. It's this. Justification for Augustine is the healing of the will. If our problem is not primarily one of knowledge, but one of our will, our desires, our affections, you can see how powerful this doctrine is. Justification is the healing of our affection, the healing of our desires, the healing of our will. So, with all due respect to Plato and Socrates, who are giants, who are far smarter than I will ever be, and there's a whole lot we can learn from them, this prayer says that they're wrong. They said the primary problem with humanity is that we, if we know the good, will do the good. The problem of humanity is ignorance. And I think for a lot of us, we tend to think that way too, right? I'm all for great schools and good education, but education alone will not prevent you from being a racist. Will not prevent you, will not enable you to love your neighbor. It's important, of course. But our problem is not primarily one of knowledge. It's a problem of the will. Again, yeah, if you, you remember the dialogues for, for Plato, it's if you see the forms, you will change. And there's a lot of truth to that. But according to this collect, according to Augustine, according to the Bible, and dare I say human experience, knowing isn't enough. And what this means is you can go to seminary. You can do all the Bible studies in the world. You can study theology, all good things. But if your heart, if my heart, is not inclined toward God and my neighbor, then I'm not going to love them. The great 16th century reformer Thomas Cranmer, he's the one who assembled the first Book of Common Prayer where we get our liturgy, he describes our problem this way. And I've said this before. But the heart wants, the mind justifies, the will chooses. Did you get that? What the heart wants, the mind justifies, the will chooses. My friends, knowing is not enough. So in this prayer, we ask for more than understanding. We're asking for a gift. We're asking for power. We're asking for the heart to do what we know we ought to do. We're saying, Lord, help me right, know the right thing. But even more importantly, give me the ability to be able to do it. In other words, Lord, give me a heart transplant. So how do our hearts change? How do people change? How do you change? How do I change? And particularly in those areas of our lives where we just can't change. I'm not necessarily talking about doing hard things. 
I'm not talking about conjuring up the discipline to wake up at 5 a.m. and go to the gym every day if that's the kind of thing that you have the power to do already. I'm talking about the things that you just can't quit. That I just can't take on as much as I'd like to, as much as I know I should. And this is the point of the sermon where I transition to the epistle. Because the, the epistle, I believe, gives us a picture of how we might change in the most important ways. The most important ways being what I talked about last week. How our hearts might be turned toward loving God and loving our neighbor. How does this happen? Well, in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, if you want to turn there, you don't really have to because I'm going to give a summary of it. It's as you'll notice, it's very dense. This is Paul at his finest. This is Paul at his just Paulness. There's so much going on. You could read it five times and not exhaust it. And yet, in typical Paul fashion, everything's happening, but one thing's happening. We read that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that he destined us for adoption as his children that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, that he has made known to us the mystery of his will, that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance so that we might live for the praise of his glory. Again, that's not even the whole passage, and there's a whole lot going on there. But he writes all of that. All of that is to say that since before the foundation of the world, whatever that means, before the cosmos, before everything, you and I have been the desire of God's heart. In all of that jumbled denseness, what he is saying is very simple and yet profound. It's more profound than a sign that says Jesus loves you. As great as that sign is, what Paul is doing is giving flesh to that. Paul is saying, from time immemorial, before time, whatever that means, God has chosen for you to be his desire. We have been the desire of God's heart from time before time. What doesn't make sense in our minds? And when we internalize that we are the desire of God's heart, notice I didn't say when we know that we're the desire of God's heart. A lot of us came here this morning knowing because people have told us God loves you, Jesus loves you. But when we internalize that we are the desire of God's heart, we might just find that it changes us, that our desires change when we internalize that we have been the desire of God's heart always, even in our worst moments, we might just find ourselves desiring God. But what does that look like? What does it look like that we are the desire of God's heart? What is this epistle reading actually getting at? I've got this story, and I hope that you're as into it as I am, but I I love this story, and I think this unpacks what Paul's doing perfectly. 
There was this great 19th century dean of Princeton Seminary. His name is B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Warfield. He is famous for many reasons, some good, some bad. But he is essentially looked to as the guy for Protestant orthodoxy. This is the, the father of contemporary Protestant orthodoxy for the 20th and 21st centuries. But before he became dean of the seminary, he got married to the love of his life. And he went to Germany for their honeymoon. And on the honeymoon, they were on a lake, and there was this terrible thunderstorm. So terrible that Annie, his wife, was traumatized for the rest of her life. We're talking they got married. This is the honeymoon. She was never the same after. She was so traumatized that Warfield could never leave her side. He's this famous person. He's written all these incredible things, but he can't go on tour, on circuit. He can't leave her. And to his credit, he was faithful until the day she died. And in fact, they died on the same day. My friends, would Warfield have married her if he knew that days after their wedding day, she would be traumatized for life? That he would have to take care of her for the rest of his life? Would you marry that person? I'm a piece of work. I know I wouldn't. This is an event that would completely change your life and would bind you to this broken and difficult to take care of spouse. All of you who are saying you would, would you really? Maybe you would. It's a difficult question to answer. But according to this epistle reading, we know how God would answer the question. According to this epistle reading, we know that we are going to make the divine life a mess. We have made the divine life a mess. And it's ultimately led to the crucified God. And yet God, knowing this all in advance from the, before the foundation of the world, before the cosmos, again, whatever that means, says, this is what I want to do. I am going to bind myself to you. I am going to bind myself to suffering sinners. My friends, this is what enjoy your forgiveness means. From the beginning of it all, from before the beginning. And this means at your worst moments when you are so embarrassed and your life has gone off the rails and you're so ashamed and you wish it had all gone differently. These are the moments when God says, you are mine. And it's not even in spite of those moments. According to this text, it seems to be because of the brokenness, Christ has chosen us as his beloved. Friends, what this means, I'm getting very theological today, but I I think you're following. What this means is that the incarnation, God becoming one of us and dying on our behalf, was never plan B. 
It wasn't some mop-up operation. It has been planned A from the beginning. God's desire, a community of redeemed sinners like you and me. And friends, it's so often in these broken places where we change, where the light shines through, and we are healed, change from the inside out. Knowledge is not enough. May the divine life, the divine love, shine in your heart and mine and heal our wills. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.